Hello and welcome to Big Ideas Into Action. This is WRI's podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and this is a special episode aimed squarely at the forthcoming Biden administration in the US. What will President Joe Biden mean for the environment, for climate action, for energy, for technology? How will this tie in with recovery from the COVID crisis? Do you actually do get more jobs, better jobs, income boosts from the very first year if you invest in a green recovery? And what will all this mean for the rest of the world? The world's indispensable leader on issues of technology and so much else will be back in the game. So, in January, the United States will get its next president, Joe Biden. This will undoubtedly have an impact on the environmental agenda, but in what way? A couple of days ago, WRI held a press call for journalists picking over the issues. This podcast is a slightly condensed version of that. First, introductory remarks from three WRI colleagues, outlining their thoughts about the challenges and opportunities facing President-elect Biden. In a moment, we'll hear from Helen Mountford, WRI's Vice President for Climate and Economics, and then Dan Lashoff, the Director of WRI United States. But first, the President of the World Resources Institute, Andrew Steer. Fascinating that climate change, which four years ago was a, perceived to be a political vote loser, this time was very much a vote winner. Uh, Evidence is overwhelming that the American people want action on climate change. And so we are delighted uh, as an institute to be able to support this new government in their efforts. Uh, Sort of three blocks that we'll talk a little bit about today. First, federal action that President Biden's administration can take. Obviously, we don't know the shape of the Senate yet. On the international side, day one, re-enter the Paris Accord. The notion that the Americans are back in the game on Paris. The fact that uh, we will have an administration that actually realizes how serious the issue is, um, that will engage with Europe, will engage with China and India and the other key players. The world's indispensable leader on issues of technology and so much else will be back in the game very, very encouraging. Now, of course, a Biden administration, if it's joining the Paris deal again, it needs to come up with its own goals for 2030. It needs a new NDC. We've done a lot of work on this. Uh, We would recommend that a 45 to 50% reduction in emissions over 2005 would be an appropriate and very doable goal to have. Uh, We specialize in looking at the sort of the economic implications and the social implications. We believe that a bold NDC would be good for citizens, it'd be good for competitiveness, it'd be good for jobs, has to be done right, has to be designed well. And we believe this new administration understands how to do that. In addition to federal action and international action, there's another type of action which is important, and that is what you could call federalism. And by that, I would encourage you to look in our website at what we call the new climate federalism. That is basically the job of a federal government is to work with the states and with corporations and with cities. In most countries, as they try to implement climate policies, they don't do a brilliantly good job at linking federal action to subnational action. Most countries in the world, for example, don't have national urban strategies that then link to city strategies. 
And one of the most exciting things that the new administration needs to do is to try and do that. Because remember, over the last four years, it's been the cities, the states, and the corporations that have led together with NGOs and scientists and so on. And so what really matters now is that the helping hand of the federal government comes alongside things. And so we're looking forward to a very exciting four years. And certainly from the standpoint of WRI, we want to be as helpful as we possibly can. Indeed, anyone who cares about the climate crisis is now breathing a huge sigh of relief. The US is officially back in the game. But the diplomatic terrain has also fundamentally shifted from where it was when President-elect Biden last served in the White House. And we need to bear that in mind. What we've actually seen recently is other G20 countries have really been stepping up on climate action, recognizing the urgency of the climate crisis, even in the midst of tackling a global pandemic. So we've seen just recently China has announced a, a target to zero out its own emissions before 2060. Japan, South Korea, and South Africa have announced similar net zero targets for 2050. And the European Union, of course, in the last year has passed a green deal and has dedicated 30% of its total economic stimulus package and its next multi-year budget to climate action. So we're seeing some real leadership in the G20. Now, all of this actually complements the leadership we've already been seeing from a number of vulnerable developing countries who've been stepping up over the last few years, and what we're seeing also from companies and from investors, as Andrew mentioned. We've got over a thousand major companies worldwide now that have set ambitious emission reduction targets aligned with the science, and more and more investors are shifting away from fossil fuels and towards clean investments. It's where the smart money is heading. So all this means that President-elect Biden will have only a very short honeymoon period to catch up if he wants to stand arm in arm with leaders on the global stage. The signal so far suggests that he is more than up to the challenge. So we're looking forward to that. What will that actually look like? There's four things we'd emphasize in terms of the international perspective, what President-elect Biden needs to do to step up. First and foremost, as Andrew said, is really rejoin the Paris Agreement on day one. He's committed to doing so, we expect that to go ahead. That's not gonna be enough on its own. Second, we need the US to submit an updated national climate commitment under the Paris Agreement and well before next November's COP26 climate summit. From WRI, we recommend that they submit one which is 45 to 50% below um, 2005 levels by 2030. We think that's realistic, ambitious, and it's good for the US economy and for Americans. Third, need to make good on ramping up financial support for developing countries to help them to prepare for climate impacts and accelerate a strong, inclusive, and low-carbon economic transition. And fourth, forge strong partnerships with the EU, with India, with others, to bring countries together to advance this climate agenda. And we need to ensure that climate is top priority in forums such as the G7, the G20, APEC, and in multilateral institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. US leadership and ensuring that happens will be critical. For the last four years, the Trump administration slammed the brakes on climate action and the global community has waited patiently, moving ahead themselves, but looking to when the US would step again. Now they're raring to pick up the pace with the US back in the game and we're excited to help support that. 
President-elect Biden ran on the most ambitious and comprehensive climate platform in history. And uh, he has a mandate to implement that platform. Exit polls from Fox News show that 70% of voters support increased federal investment in the clean energy transition. And that's from Fox. Uh, many other polls uh, show that, that, that there's overwhelming bipartisan support for that type of action. And we know that young people uh, turned out in unprecedented numbers in this election and that a major motivation for them was the ambitious climate agenda that President-elect Biden ran on. In a close election, there's lots of things that are critical to the outcome, but the youth turnout was one of the critical factors to the outcome of this election. So there's a real mandate to act. Now, President Biden will have his work cut out for him to reverse the damage that's been done over the last four years. And one of his major challenges is gonna to be to rebuild the capacity of agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency's Interior Department and, and Department of Energy, whose expertise has been eroded. To be successful, he's going to need to focus on a smaller number of very high impact actions, in addition to pursuing the very expansive agenda that he's put forward. In, in my commentary, I outlined 10 priorities. Uh, that's up on WRI.org, I urge you to look at it. In the interest of time here, let me summarize those in four buckets. First, um, as both Andrew and Helen mentioned, the Biden administration will need to set a 2030 target. That is not currently part of their platform. They've set a very ambitious and important goal of zero net emissions by 2050. That is part of the platform. There's a recognition that a 2030 target is needed. As Andrew said, our analysis shows that 45 to 50% is ambitious and achievable. And that target's not just necessary for the international community. It is needed for that, but it's also uh, would serve as a North Star for all of the actions that the administration takes domestically. Second, President Biden can use his executive authority and he needs to use it to achieve the maximum possible emission reductions. He should issue an executive order to the agencies uh, to look at all of their authorities and uh, take action, not just to reverse uh, the rollbacks that the Trump administration took, but to move forward with stronger actions. I'll highlight just one, which would be probably the most impactful, and that is setting a clean car standard uh, that builds on the previous ones that were in place in the Obama administration, and that is driving towards zero emissions for new vehicles by 2035 as California is planning to do and as many countries around the world are, are starting to adopt. Third, uh, President Biden should negotiate a strong deal with Congress on budget bills. Even if uh, the Democrats don't have full control of both houses of Congress and the White House, the president has an enormous amount of leverage in legislation that, that uh, spends money that uh, is required every year. And so he needs to use that leverage to maximum effect to get his priorities for investing in clean energy infrastructure, such as electric vehicle charging, upgrading our schools, upgrading the electricity grid uh, to support more wind and solar. Fourth, President Biden should seize opportunities for bipartisan legislation. And we believe there will be some. Um, there's bipartisan support for a, a bill to phase down the use of HFCs, uh, the super pollutants found in, in refrigeration and, and other cooling equipment. There's clearly bipartisan interest in uh, planting trees and other nature-based solutions 
and in technology development, uh, including around carbon dioxide removal. And that was Dan Lashoff, before him Helen Mountford and Andrew Steer. Now the journalists' questions. First, one about the impact that the COVID crisis might have on Joe Biden's priorities. Back to Andrew on this. The biggest challenge is he's got so much on his plate and how brilliant it was on Saturday night to hear him say there are four challenges. The first three are the ones that people might think intuitively you do first. The fourth was climate change. And all around the world, countries are saying, well, wait a minute, we'd love to do something on climate change, but for heaven's sake, we've got the worst pandemic ever. We've got an economic crisis. We may have a you know, racial crisis too. We need to focus on that first. And what the analysis shows is that actually, if you want to restore your economy, you want to spend your money on things that disperse quickly, that generate jobs, that are good for health and make sense. And it turns out that the evidence is just totally overwhelming that if the United States, you know, has already sort of allocated, what, three trillion, it may be another one or two coming along, just think about how do they spend their money? The temptation is you rebuild what you had before. You build yesterday's economy. And in some extent, that's what happened 10 years ago. But the evidence is overwhelming. Invest in energy efficiency, invest in nature-based solutions, invest in green power. And actually, that would lead to two to four times more jobs than if you invest in cement intensive, fossil fuel intensive. So, so the real question will be, is it possible to thread that needle in a way that is persuasive? Some countries are really starting to do it. Europe is doing that, European Union. Korea is doing that to some extent. Even India is doing some good things. Canada is thinking about it. And so I think the real challenge will be to do the two together. And of course, a greener future is also a much healthier future. I think 3 billion people in the world today do not have water so they can even wash their hands in a truly healthy way. So in other words, investing, investing in sustainable investments actually addresses health issues as well as climate, as well as uh, economic issues. Next, what happens on climate finance? Here's Joe Thwaites from the WRI Centre for Sustainable Finance. To recap, yeah, the, the Obama administration in 2014 pledged $3 billion to the Green Climate Fund, and that actually made it the largest pledger to the fund. They delivered a billion dollars of that pledge, but the Trump administration refused to advance further payments. So the Biden administration has said that they will recommit to the, uh, the Green Climate Fund. We interpret that to mean that they would be working to deliver that outstanding $2 billion to the GCF. There's also a strong expectation both from developing countries and partners in Europe, that the US would go further to make up for this lost time. Uh, Last year, developed countries made a new round of pledges to the fund. Uh, Many of them doubled their contributions. So there will be some pressure on the Biden administration to step up and match this level of effort. In terms of process and, and, and prospects for delivering this, we've seen over the last four years that Congress continued actually to appropriate funding for a variety of climate finance accounts with bipartisan support. The House version of the FY21 appropriations bill does include language that would permit a uh, a contribution to the GCF. So whatever the final makeup of the 117th Congress, we think there is scope to increase such funding. But there's also a lot that the uh, incoming administration can do through executive action and, and the Obama administration indeed delivered the billion dollars for the GCF through executive action. So it is possible 
ideally it would come with congressional engagement in, in, in order to really uh, achieve the scale needed. I think it's also important to talk about climate finance flows beyond just the GCF, which is obviously a hugely important part of it and, and something we definitely want to be high on their agenda. But we think the Biden administration should consider becoming a contributor to the Adaptation Fund, which now serves the Paris Agreement, to increase its funding for the Global Environment Facility that's going to have a, a new uh, replenishment round in 2022, and then also to increase bilateral support. So funding that goes through USAID and the State Department and, and a few other departments for climate action in developing countries, and particularly for adaptation and resilience, where vulnerable countries are expressing uh, huge and growing needs. The good news is that Congress has continued to appropriate funding over the last four years for a variety of these, these accounts, particularly the bilateral and the Global Environment Facility budget lines. So there is a lot to build on there, and it's actually one of the areas where even when the uh, Congress was entirely in Republican hands from 2017 to uh, 2019, they continue to fund some of these climate accounts. So I think there's a basis there to build on. And with a re-engaged executive, there is a lot of potential to scale up. The other thing to say is that we need to be looking beyond just the, the sort of pro-climate funding, but also ensuring financial institutions align all their investments with the climate goals of the Paris Agreement. And that includes ensuring that US uh, institutions like the Development Finance Corporation and the Export-Import Bank phase out funding for fossil fuels while ramping up climate action financing, but also using the US using its influence within the multilateral development banks to help them accelerate their existing processes on portfolio alignment with climate goals. And all of these institutions are going to be approaching the new administration asking for, for more funding from the US. And as one of their largest funders, the US is in a really strong position to ensure that any funding increases are predicated on supporting a green COVID recovery. The other thing to say is, uh, is on fossil fuel subsidy reform and phase out. Domestically, that is something that requires more congressional engagement. But internationally, there's a lot that can be done through executive authority. And we, you know, we've seen in the Obama administration, his guidelines on, on coal projects in MDBs and getting US board members in the multilateral development banks to vote against them really helped catalyze the, the adoption of policies by those banks. So I think we can look forward to more engagement there. And, and there's, so there's a lot of potential on the international front to, for the US to phase out uh, a lot of its international fossil fuel subsidies. Now back to Helen and a question about how the new administration might approach the Amazon. One of the things that we've been doing recently is working with a number of counterparts in Brazil with our WRI Brazil team to look at where the economic opportunities are for a different growth path for Brazil, one that does not involve deforestation, one that actually is towards a more green recovery. And we released a study in August on a new economy for Brazil, which very much echoes what Andrew just said a moment ago about how much better for Brazil, for the economy, for Brazilians, a greener growth path would be. So I think there's a strong basis and a very strong emerging basis, not just clearly the science, but also on the economics and the sort of social benefits of why it's important to tackle deforestation in the Amazon. Certainly a number of countries in the re region, Colombia, the Letitia Pact with Brazil and with others has really said this as a priority. 
I think one of the first challenges for the Biden and Harris administration is really going to be reestablishing some of those discussions and dialogue around this, looking for where those opportunities are, how to advance them. What our work and that of others has shown is that one of the barriers to moving forward more rapidly on some of these, um, these opportunities is a lack of financing. So certainly finance has a role to play and being able to leverage private finance through some strategic international finance would be fantastic. But I think before getting there, a first step is really to actually have those political level um, and diplomatic dialogues, discussions to make sure everyone's on the same uh, page in terms of the opportunities, what's needed to seize them and what the benefits are for climate and for the people. A question for Laurie Bird, the director of WRI's U.S. energy program. How can the Biden administration collaborate with other countries on clean energy? Yeah, I think there's a key role going forward, uh, a new administration, in helping to drive the new technologies that are needed to get the power sector to net zero in particular. We've made a lot of progress on wind and solar energy. Those prices have come down dramatically in the last decade. Same thing with storage, with lithium iron battery storage in particular. But we need additional technologies to really get to high penetrations of clean energy in the electric sector. Collaboration on trying to bring down costs of hydrogen and expand the deployment of new technologies, that being hydrogen, new forms of storage, other forms of dispatchable clean energy Uh, that can help us get the power sector to net zero. Staying with Laurie and adding in Dan and Andrew again, what are the opportunities for the Biden administration if it continues to face challenges in Congress? I think there is tremendous opportunity still to drive the clean energy transition at the state and, and local level. There's been a lot of interest there. One of the key challenges that they face are budget issues with respect to COVID impacts, right? So, so one of the key things that they need is support from the federal government in terms of you know stimulus that can help them achieve their goals and drive progress forward. I will mention also that I think there were at least a half a dozen ballot initiatives at the state and local level that were designed to make additional progress there and that have passed. So we've, we've seen action in Columbus, Ohio to enable renewable energy to be used by their residents there through community choice aggregation state of Nevada increased its renewable energy standard to 50%, or it codified that into the constitution. Several other jurisdictions passed funding mechanisms for climate change uh, initiatives. So things to drive renewables, the clean energy transition and create jobs. Some local jurisdictions have taken their own action to try to develop funding mechanisms to move forward, but others are really struggling with those, the ability to access funds to move forward. Uh, So that's clearly something that the federal government could help with. I think one other area that the administration can certainly do when it writes regulations is designing them so that they serve as a floor and not a ceiling on action from uh, states and other subnationals. So, I mean, first of all, immediately, uh, I think we'll expect the, the Biden administration to sort of reissue the the waiver that allows California to set stronger clean car standards uh, while still uh, working to try to unify a strong coordinated national standard, but making sure that 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 authority is clear. But for example, uh, as it moves forward with standards around power plants, uh, writing those in such a way that states could set tougher standards that would uh, lead to more ambition is another component. And we address that in some detail in our report on the new climate federalism that Andrew mentioned up top. It's important to remember the federal government is now playing catch up. 
most countries around the world, the federal governments are not good at sitting down with cities, with states, with corporations and saying, look, what can we learn from each other? What, how could we design, you know, in the case of, let's say, building efficiency, you guys are responsible for some things, we're responsible for others. How do we make these things multiply and synergize rather than be offsetting? It's a striking in this country and in most countries, by the way, if you talk to mayors, they often feel very, very unincluded in discussions on federal policy. But it's a mindset, and it's going to be really important that the Biden administration adopts that mindset. You're listening to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. In this episode, unpicking the environmental challenges facing President-elect Biden and asking what he might do about them. Coming up, backlashes, carbon prices and China. But to kick off the second half of this podcast, a tricky question for Andrew Steer and Helen Mountford. What lessons should be learned from the continuing popularity of those, including President Donald Trump, who are more sceptical of the need for positive change or environmental action? Four years ago, the uh, environmental movement in this country needed to, including ourselves, needed to look ourselves in the mirror and say, wait a minute, were we not part of those same elites that actually caused such populism to win so many votes. And so too right now, we need to ask ourselves exactly that question. Why have we not been more effective at demonstrating that actually tomorrow's economy, a greener economy, is actually very good for those who are poor, those who are disenfranchised, those who are disempowered? And why do we not have more geography in our thinking? We have not done a good job at thinking about geography. We haven't done a good job thinking about the Rust Belt, and nor have either of the political parties, to be crystal clear. So yeah, I think there are some very, very big implications. And how you know, amazingly cool is it that Kamala Harris, Vice President of the United States, is an African-American woman and an Asian-American woman. Uh, we all need to really bring the social side into the way we think. I should say that in the World Resources Institute, we are, we are just uh, appointing a, a new director of governance and we're changing, we're changing the title to include inclusion and anti-poverty in that as well. So all of us have a lot to learn, I believe. And the kind of work that Helen's team does on the new climate economy, I mean, I think we've all done a brilliant job at demonstrating there are more jobs, there are better jobs, there's more competitiveness. We haven't done such a good job at demonstrating that can happen in the geographies that have been suffering. And that's what we need to spend a lot more time doing. I mean, I do think uh, Andrew's absolutely right. Uh, the evidence is now pretty um, overwhelming that you actually do get more jobs, better jobs, income boosts from the very first year if you invest in a green recovery rather than a sort of dirty polluting recovery locking in the old. And we're seeing that in country after country around the world, not just here in the US. I think the challenge is how do you bring this down to the ground to what it actually means to people, to specific communities. And some of the things that uh, we and others have suggested as parts of a strong economic recovery package 
are really those kinds of investments which will actually deliver jobs on the ground across the state. So for example, building in um, much stronger energy efficiency in buildings. By being able to do that, you're actually reducing the bills for householders. Um, it's something which is going to create a range of different jobs, but in every town, every city across the U.S. Similarly, things like, you know, restoring coastal degraded lands in, in coastal areas or in farmlands and how that can actually boost farmer or fisher income while also delivering much more environmental benefits. So I think taking this down to the level of the, the sort of granular, what does this mean to specific communities, to specific groups of people? What does this mean for to those who've been disenfranchised or are kept out of uh, the system in the past is what we and others are focusing on now. But from what we can see, there's a lot of opportunities, important ones, and definitely ones that we would hope would get bipartisan support in terms of a stimulus package going forward. Next, bringing in Christina D. Concini, WRI's Director of Government Affairs, talking about why a price for carbon might be a necessary mechanism for making environmental progress. What I wanted to make sure people have seen is the recent climate change risk report by the Commodities Future Trading Commission that came out, because it really underscores that we can't just let this progress kind of continue and think that's enough. It's the first time ever in the United States that a U.S. regulator has sent a really big alarm bell to the entire financial system in the United States and regulatory system that climate change poses a very serious financial and economic risk for us because we don't have a price on it and we don't calculate it in. And the report shows that while businesses can do a lot, they cannot fix this by themselves. They need a signal They need incentives, and their first recommendation is to put a price on carbon, which I'll be the first to tell you is a complicated thing politically. But the reason why that is, is because until you price that risk, you're not sending the kind of signal that you need. And in fact, we're continuing to send the wrong signal with fossil fuel subsidies, et cetera. So we're not sending a strong enough signal without some legislative action to turn the ship as much as we need to, because while investments are going to be terrific and we support all, I mean, we're completely supportive of that. It's not that and regulations are very unlikely to get us all the way where we need to go in terms of emissions reductions. Back to Helen and Andrew. How do they see the international environment, including bodies like the G7 and G20 and the Biden administration's priorities in building international ties on environmental issues? What they're looking for there is really countries where there's the heads of state or states or cities or businesses that can really stand up and actually announce what they're doing to be more ambitious on climate change. So they're setting a high bar for anybody to get on the virtual stage, the the platform, and to be able to speak at that event. It's really around how countries, states, cities, businesses, investors, others are actually stepping up and doing more on climate action. And so to be able to get there, you have to prove you are doing so. As I said, we've seen a number of countries recently that have come forward, particularly in Asia, with ambitious net zero targets for 2050 or 2060. I think beyond that, they're then looking at what does that mean in terms of your 2030 target? So again, that's the kind of thing they're going to be looking for. This gets to another question that was in the chat I saw as well, just about that collaboration with other countries. And it is just as it's clear in the US, uh, the federal government cannot do it all itself. It's got to work together with state, cities and others. Internationally, no one country can actually solve this. We are seeing some really exciting leadership from China, Japan, Korea, South Africa, stepping up action and commitments 
um, which is really important. This builds on what we've seen from a number of the developing countries and more vulnerable developing countries, but we're still going to need more. And the U.S. will play a really important role going forward in working with other countries to actually help to step up ambition. It's much easier to go together, to move forward together rather than each to move alone. And there's some important areas where real collaboration internationally could help advance the agenda. For example, on reducing methane emissions from oil and gas, uh, some of the methane leakage there, setting sort of agreeing approaches to this internationally can really help, and many others. Fossil fuel subsidy removal is already on the agenda for the G20 and G7 with commitments. You know, how will uh, the new uh, Biden and Harris administration actually help to take this forward and really achieve the commitments to phase out those um, damaging and economically inefficient fossil fuel subsidies? That's going to be one of the things we'll be looking for. You know, what about G7 and G20? What Mm -hmm. could they do? And the answer is, I believe, a lot. Um, and, And now with the Biden administration pushing for that, I mean, it's totally inexcusable that there should be a G20 summit this year in Saudi Arabia and that United States and Brazil and Saudi Arabia and Russia, you know, said, no, we don't want to, we want to address the most challenging, tough global collective action that we're all facing. What should they do? They should put this central to their agenda every year. Of course, next year, Italy will be chairing G20, the United Kingdom will chair G7. And basically they should organize it around the global transitions that need to happen, energy, food and rural areas, manufacturing, consumption, transportation. They should have a vision. They should create a vision for the world, how we could bring in the the revolution. And even my golden retriever is barking in agreement with that. So very exciting it's going to be, I I believe. And certainly, you know, listening to Boris Johnson a couple of days ago on the, the television, talking about how excited he is that a Biden administration will engage in the lead up to COP26, Um, very encouraging. Next to the issue of electric vehicles and Dan Lashoff. Beyond the clean car standards, what can we do to advance clean vehicles? And and the answer is a lot. The Biden campaign platform emphasizes investing in electric vehicle charging infrastructure, which we know is both critical to serve the increasing number of clean cars that we will have on the road, electric cars, but also that the availability of charging infrastructure, its visibility is something that will help accelerate that market transition. So both charging infrastructure for long distance trips, for example, along the interstate highway system in the US, but also in urban areas that serve people who live in multifamily housing who who may not currently have an option to plug in in a garage. So uh, there's a lot of investment in that area. Another thing that I would emphasize is uh, federal support for transitioning, particularly the bus fleets, uh, both school buses and transit buses as part of the stimulus. Um, That's a good way to get money to uh, localities that not only provides a boost immediately, but lowers their long-term operating costs. And finally, Biden has focused quite a bit on investing in domestic manufacturing capacity for electric vehicles uh, for both batteries and assembly and motors. And that transition is really important to the future of auto industry jobs and, and something that he has really committed to. Now, China. Relations will undoubtedly be different between Beijing and Washington after the fractious four years under Donald Trump. But what exactly will this mean for the environmental agenda? Here's Helen. 
I mean, it's definitely very difficult right now. Politically, there are other issues that are going to be at the forefront for the U.S.-China relationship, I think, for a while. So I do think initially they might actually be competitors in terms of looking at who can actually race uh, to get sort of more competitive on some of the clean energy technologies, on the sectors and the industries of the future, on electric vehicles and charging systems. I think there's going to be a bit of healthy competition there uh, to look at how to step up. Of course, the U.S. is definitely coming from behind right now, but um, there's burgeoning markets, uh, growing markets in all of these areas. So I think uh, as U.S. shifts to a much more green economy, an industrial approach, which really actually embraces these technologies and these industries of the future, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that sort of relationship develops. Beyond that, there are areas where both we expect will be moving forward on climate action, as will many others um, and many other countries. And so I think what we're going to be looking for also is some of those sort of multi-country partnerships on, uh, on tackling some of these issues. I think another one that's going to be incredibly important is um, what this actually means in terms of uh, what both countries are doing to support other countries moving forward and to what extent uh, that is aligning with their own national policies in terms of investments, for example, in Africa, in development assistance. Uh, we know that at the moment, China, Korea and Japan as well are the three major funders of coal internationally. Both uh, Japan and Korea have recently been making some very strong uh, positive statements, recognizing that that's not the way to go in the future. That's not beneficial for the countries which they're supporting. They're starting to shift away from that. I think one of the things that'll be interesting to see is will the U.S. play a role in helping to encourage and sort of uh, um, uh, get China to shift away from international coal finance? That will be something to watch. Finally, to Dan, which new technologies does he think could get a kickstart from the Biden administration? Certainly hydrogen is an area that's getting increasing attention for the power sector. I'd say geothermal is, uh, is quite interesting as well. We can get very far in reducing power sector emissions with the technologies we have now. Different studies reach different conclusions about whether that's 70 or 80 or 90 percent, um, but we definitely are going to need some dispatchable uh, zero emission sources of energy to close the gap. And, uh, and so that's one area of development. The other one, which we haven't mentioned uh, worth mentioning here is in the industrial sector. So 22% of US carbon dioxide emissions come from large industries like cement, steel, petrochemicals, and we're going to need some new technologies there to produce uh, low carbon concrete, maybe even negative emission concrete, um, which uh, is something that does not exist, but uh, we've done some analysis which suggests it could exist with the right market conditions. And that's a place where uh, the federal government can use its purchasing power to create uh, new markets for uh, low carbon commodities that are currently uh, have a very high carbon footprint. And that was Dan Lashoff ending this special post-US election edition of WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. The other experts you heard from were Andrew Steer, Helen Mountford, Laurie Bird, Joe Thwaites and Christina DiConcini. There is a lot more on this subject, as you'd imagine, on our website, WRI.org. Don't forget, if you do like our podcasts, find a way to subscribe through whatever podcast app you use. I'm Nicholas Walton. Goodbye for now.